You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Uh, welcome, I'm Rena Weissman with SFNSF, and uh, this is a program held here monthly with an author event once a month and a film night once a month. A couple other little events thrown in here and there over the year. Uh, we're sponsored by Tachyon Publications, one of San Francisco's finest independent uh, presses. They're online at tachyonpublications.com. I urge you to check out each and every one of their books. And we're also underwritten by Variety Children's Charity of Northern California, in whose lovely theater and lounge you are sitting. What we're able to do to present this program is host our cash bar out there, which you've noticed. All those proceeds go right back to the charity. You know, we're kind of an all-volunteer gig here, so the money we raise goes right back into Variety to the tune of about 20 grand over the past six years that we've been here, and uh, we're very pleased with that. Despite uh, encouraging people's alcoholic tendencies to a slight degree, we thank you all. <laughs> so, you can also have soda. There's also soda. Uh, at any rate, um, I do want to let you know before we begin tonight, we've got uh, some great events coming up, all of which you can find out about online by joining our newsletter, which is SFNSF. That comes out twice a month with occasional updates. It's not a big, uh, I won't spam you, you won't get tons of stuff, but you can sign up for that outside uh, at the front door, or you can just email me at any time at SFNSFEvents at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, coming up after uh, this wonderful event tonight, we've got many more throughout the year. We have Wednesday night, a very special event for our film uh, offering for February, and that is uh, filmmaker director Sandy Calora will be here from Los Angeles. Might have a special guest in the person of one of his actors. We'll find out if he's able to take the road trip up from LA or not. But we'll be showing a very, very well-received, extremely professionally produced fan film called Batman uh, Dead End, which was a huge, huge rave hit at Comic-Con a year or so ago, and his follow-up uh, feature, Hunter Prey. And the, the filmmaker, director, Sandy, will be here to meet and greet, discuss, answer questions. So that's uh, going to be a really fun evening, and that's next Wednesday, the 16th. Following that, on March 3rd, our next author night will be featuring authors Patrick Rothfuss and Gail Carriger, and that will be an RSVP-only event. We're not going to have just uh, open seating for that. And again, if you're on the newsletter, you'll get information about how to apply for tickets for that night. And following up with that, just a little further ahead, March 14th, um, from March 11th to the 13th, there is a wonderful new convention just starting out called FogCon. Get it? FogCon, San Francisco. Um, you can find out more about that at fogcon.org. But uh, that, their special guest will be local author Pat Murphy. Um, and uh, we'll ha also ha they'll also have Jeff and Ann Vandermeer here. Um, and then their, I guess their, 
their dead guest of honor, I don't know how else to put it, is Fritz, <laughs> Fritz Lieber. Lieber? Lieber? Lieber. I always mess that one up. So I'm sure he will be here with us in spirit nonetheless. So, But uh, as a result of that, we're also able to host Jeff and Ann Vandermeer here on Monday, March 14th. So again, all that info you can find out online. So I urge you to check that out. Also learn more about Variety at varietync.org. And while I'm spouting names, I'm going to spout a really good one and say, take it away, Terry. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks. Um, Batman Dead In, isn't that on, in rehearsal on Broadway right now? <laughs> I think I've heard of it. Um, well, welcome, everybody. Um, tonight, um, well, it's like any other night. We have two interesting authors, and we're gonna, they're going to read a bit, and then we're going to talk a bit. So without, um, so let's just move right on into it. Our first author I met through one of our regulars and one of science fiction's, uh, the stars in SF's Crown, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, who introduced me to um, our first author who, like, uh, she had been to Antarctica, like Stan, as an artist. She's a, a scientist and a science writer and also a fiction writer who was invited as part of the program that they had at McMurdo where they would bring down novelists, artists, uh, painters, and poets to sort of um, try to add a little dimension to the um, scientific work that was going on there. And through Stan, I got to hear a little of her work, uh, some of her fiction that she said in Antarctica, and it seemed to me sufficiently science fictional uh, to qualify for this venue. And also, it seemed to me that she was, uh, as a writer, sufficiently um, accomplished and literary to um, ride our horse. So she's actually been a, a winner of the Penn Syndicate What's it called? The Penn Syndicated Fiction Project. Fiction Project. She'll we'll explain later what that means. She's a Lambda Award finalist. She is a California Arts Council fellow, the winner of that. She's won the Stonewall Book Award, which I think is given out by the uh, American Library Association. American Library Association. She's a, a well-known uh, uh, writer in the uh, the gay field and the feminist field, and uh, and also in not in science fiction, but in science and in fiction. So at at any rate, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Lucy Glane Jane Bledsoe. Thank you, Terry. Thanks, Terry. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be here tonight. It was really fun meeting Terry a few months ago via Stan and just to hear about this reading. And I'm very pleased to be included. As, as, as Terry put it, he convinced people that Antarctica was like another planet. So, And it, it very much is. Um, I'm going to read just a, f a few different scenes from my um, book that came out earlier this year called The Big Bang Symphony. Um, I went down um, on the National Science Foundation's Artists and Writers Fellowship. Um, I actually went twice on that fellowship. And <clears throat> their idea basically is they, they want painters, uh, photographers, writers to go down there and 
I, I guess I like to use the word interpret the science that's happening there for the taxpayers who are paying for it. So it's kind of a brilliant idea. We don't have much dialogue in this country between artists and scientists. And so what I wanted to do with that fellowship is write about the um, contemporary communities who are working there now. We all know, I mean, I love the Shackleton story. Who doesn't? But that's been done and done and done and done. And very, very, very little has been written. Um, except for Kim Stanley Robinson's brilliant novel um, about contemporary Antarctica and the people who are there working now, and I really wanted to write about those people. Once I got there, I, it was just I just it was so I loved it because it's this, these especially McMurdo Station, the biggest American station. It's this fishbowl community. I mean, it's it's small. E everybody lives out in front of everyone, and it's very very intense because everybody's living very close to the bone, and survival is such an immediate issue that things really get pretty crazy pretty fast there in a very wonderful way, so it's a perfect place for fiction. So um, my novel has three main characters. Uh, one is a galley cook, one is a climate change geologist, and the third is a composer who's writing music. She's actually the title character who's writing a symphony about the Big Bang. Her father also happens to be an astrophysicist at the South Pole. Um, and they, he doesn't know about her. She's never met. <laughs> She's never met. That's, that's a whole sub-story I won't go into now, but one of the reasons she goes, she gets this fellowship because she wants to sort of stalk her father. She knows he's her father and see what he looks like. Um, what I am going to read right now um, are three different scenes that take place at a real live place called Hotel South Pole. Um, the South Pole Station is much smaller than McMurdo, and about a mile away from the station is this eight-foot square shack that people call Hotel South Pole. And you can go out there for solitude, um, to have an affair. People do all different kinds of things out in that little shack. Because it's one thing about these stations, there's like zero privacy, none. Um, so all three of these scenes take place th there or near there. And this first scene, um, Rosie, the galley cook, is taking Michaela, the composer, out. Just She just wants to show it to her. And they, they've become friends. Um, they had a bonding moment on their flight in because it was a very, very rough landing. And a young woman actually died in that landing. And um, they were the two people who had to find and take care of the body. So, but this is many weeks later, and Rosie is taking Michaela out to Hotel South Pole. I want to show you something really cool if you're into a walk. It's about a mile. Michaela's smile revealed a devastating stability. Those granite eyes, those strong hands, creating music seemed like such an elusive endeavor, like catching snowflakes without melting them. Yet Rosie sensed that Michaela had a monolith of a story that would remain standing in the worst storm. Rosie said, you can leave this place? Hell yes, let's go. <laughs> After gearing up and checking out, they followed a track through the snow away from the station. The track led nowhere toward oblivion, but Michaela walked confidently, filling the void with a stream of stories. She told Rosie about the commune in Northern California where she'd grown up making her laugh with tales of a failed goat herd that had denuded their forest floor and the guy who got kicked out of the collective after slipping LSD into the children's afternoon snack. She told Rosie that she now had her own cabin on the land where her mom and stepdad still gardened and collected rainwater and harvested honey from their own beehives, though the mom also wrote environmental books for kids and the stepdad taught music at the community college. She told Rosie that her partner had died three years ago, but how just before that a composition of hers had been performed by the famous pianist Yvonne Beauchamp, how the music received excellent reviews and resulted in an overwhelming number of commissions how her feelings of success became inextricably tangled with her grief, how she had written almost nothing since then. Look, Michaela interrupted herself and pointed, Hotel South Pole. 
The sight astonished Rosie, a black box sitting on the ice, shelter in exile, a, a respite from oblivion. The tiny building was like a punctuation mark to this wild infinity. Rosie ran to reach it. When she got there, she grabbed the door handle. Michaela called out, wait. What? Let's keep walking. We're not going inside? Not yet. I want to show you something else. Rosie let her hand fall to her side with great reluctance. The desire to enter that tiny building felt something like love, or maybe lust, shelter, warmth, the embrace of four walls. Michaela had already begun trudging toward the horizon, leaving the well-trod route and hut behind, so Rosie followed, stopping several times to look over her shoulder. The hut shrank, became nothing more than a speck, dangerously small, and then disappeared altogether. For 360 degrees, just waves of ice and a bank of blue sky. Rosie could see so far into the distance that the horizon arced, the actual curvature of the earth. When Michaela finally stopped walking, she crouched and drew a circle in the snow with her mitten. She said, thanks for coming out here with me. We can't see the shelter anymore. I know. Their tracks leading back to Hotel South Pole were nothing more than feathery indentations in the snow. One gust of wind and the footprints would be wiped away. Michaela said, I wanted to tell you something. Rosie knew that it would be about the dead girl. Michaela said, I saw her leave the group. What do you mean? As we were all getting off the plane, the loadmaster was shouting orders, telling everyone to stay together, and I saw this person, I'm sure now that it was her, kind of shoot away from the group. I saw her step away into invisibility. But then I didn't really think about her again until you took me out to her body a little later. Rosie put a hand on Michaela's shoulder. I could have taken three steps and retrieved her. That's all it would have taken. But it didn't occur to me that she was lost or on her way to lost. How could you have known that? It wasn't your job to keep track of people. The thing is, Michaela said, I don't feel upset about it. That's what scares me. That's why I haven't told anyone. The NSF asked anyone on the flight who thought they had information to come forward. I guess I should have, but you know what? I wanted to leave her in peace. All I've been able to think is lucky girl. I can't help it. That's how her death feels to me. She stepped quietly into a whiteout and expired. I'm not saying I want to die. I don't. But everyone comes to this continent for a reason, and everyone expects her reason to be met by the continent. That girl saw the heart of Antarctica in a way you or I never will. I wonder if she heard its music, too. Michaela barked out a laugh. I'm jealous. Isn't that crazy? No, Rosie said. It's not. The thing is, Michaela said, I can see the music, the gorgeous swirling mass of temperature variant energy just after the Big Bang, just after the singularity of time and space exploded. I get such an aching picture of beauty, but I don't know how to create sound with that. Rosie gaped at Michaela. All this time, she had not been able to think past that cold, dead, into-the-road human body, but Michaela saw past, way past the dead body, to some extraordinary place it had gone. Rosie had no idea what a gorgeous swirling mass of temperature variant energy was but it sounded like the only place anyone should ever want to go. She threw her arms around Michaela and hugged her hard. You'll figure out how to write the music. Michaela nodded briskly, as if already embarrassed by her passionate outburst. Rosie took her hand and pulled her back along their faint tracks. Soon, the little black mystery package came back into view. Again, Rosie was powerfully drawn, but she wanted to savor what Michaela had shown her in the pure polar wild. She'd hold Hotel South Pole in reserve. She could always come back. For now, they walked right on by without so much as peeking in the door. So next I'm gonna read a section when Rosie does go back. And this time, uh, she's going back to meet a man that she's started to have, an a married man that she started to have an affair with. Uh, his wife's not on the ice, not in Antarctica. 
Um, and uh, she's planning, they've planned to meet out at Hotel South Pole. Rosie's and the rest of the station is involved in a great big party at the, in the main part of the station. Rosie started walking away from the station at 8 o'clock. She was supposed to get there first by 8.30 and he'd arrive around 9. The stealth was hardly necessary. Everyone would be at the party. No one would notice their absence. Even better, no one would be at the hut. But Larry had wanted the secrecy. He had appeared in the galley this afternoon, having just come in on the day's plane. Rosie was doing the lunch dishes, her arms in sudsy water and her hair in a paper hat. The shock of his tall thinness there in her kitchen made her literally gasp. He looked skinnier, his hip bones jutting out from just above the waistband of his jeans. The planes of his face hollowed as if he had suffered. Even his hair, which had not been shaved recently and stood in tiny bristles around the perimeter of his head, made him look bereft, like a, like a repentant convict. She leaned a hip against the stainless steel lip of the sink and waited for what he'd say. It'd been three weeks since she left McMurdo, since he slid the ambiguous note under her door, claiming honesty and asking her to not contact him and yet saying he'd find a way to come to the pole. Well, here he was. But a lot had happened in the interim. She'd bought land and contacted her family. Tomorrow morning she was flying to McMurdo and the next day back to the States. She would never again return to this continent. He said nothing and finally she couldn't stand the silence. Her scheduled redeployment, the sad yearning in his eyes, her speechlessness, these things combined, combusted, and she said, do you know Hotel South Pole? He touched her shoulder and shook, her, shook his head. So she began to describe the hut and the track leading out to it. He glanced around the empty kitchen and cautioned her to speak more quietly. He also suggested that they walk to the hut separately and he insisted that they forego the mandatory checkout with station officials. All this, and he hadn't even said hello yet. But he touched her shoulder again, slit, slid his hand down to her soapy wrist, and squeezed gently. A series of qualms quaked through her chest. The soles of her feet prickled, but she ignored these sensations. Now, as she walked toward the horizon, Rosie tried to imagine what it would look like inside the hut. In a landscape like this, it was no wonder four plywood walls painted black and covered with plastic sheeting could feel like the most erotic of havens, even more so when she thought of the way it offered shelter from Michaela's vision of the swirling mass of energy after the Big Bang, time and space exploding into being. Rosie laughed out loud. The sky was a perfect blue. The snow was firm, a single squeak with each boot step. Suddenly, she got it, this whole continent, the reason scientists flocked here. To many, this landscape meant only fear the way it could extinguish life so swiftly. But to researchers, it meant the door to other universes and insight to the beyond. They came to strip themselves of ordinariness so they could see the extraordinary. Like the guy who studied bird shit, endlessly digging through piles of guano so he might one day glimpse the bird's global journey or Alice, who examined the structure of rock crystal by crystal so that she might discover a story about the Earth's cataclysmic history. Or the cosmologists, especially the cosmologists, they spent their days staring at computer monitors, examining long lists of numbers, probably unvarying numbers, searching for some spike or aberration so that they might understand the origin of the universe. Antarctic scientists spent not just hours, but years, and in some cases, decades, examining minute shreds of potential evidence, billions of pieces of data, waiting, waiting, waiting for that one shred or datum that would burst open the mystery package. That took patience in the extreme. It took a tolerance for boredom. Yet, and here is the thing that suddenly awed Rosie, 
It also took extraordinary hope. A person couldn't dedicate her entire life, let alone spend huge chunks of it on this heartbreaking continent, looking for one piece of a puzzle unless she possessed some uncanny investment in the future, an ability to imagine the grand epic. This was the paradox of hope. Science provided the evidence, the facts that supported belief in this beautiful universe, the possibility of home. There on the horizon was her black plywood and plastic sheeting epiphany. She ran the rest of the way and wrapped her hand around the wooden handle, pausing for a moment before pulling open the door. She hadn't imagined anything nearly so cozy. The small bed had a real mattress and two wool blankets. A lovely window let in a square of bright light at the foot of the bed. A green Coleman stove sitting on a small wooden table promised hot liquids. Rosie used the tin pot to scoop snow from outside and put it on the stove to melt and boil for tea. Then she sat on the bed and bounced. <laughs> In the light of the polar expansiveness, she could think clearly about Larry. He was obviously frightened. It struck her as funny how those beautiful long limbs, limbs and magnificently sculpted mouth could belong to a man who was afraid to leave home. But how could she judge him? She was afraid to go home. Maybe that made them a perfect fit. She longed to feel his entire length against her, and she promised herself she'd not miss one moment of their time together tonight. She'd watch him come in the door, watch him take in the contents of their little fort, Watch him walk the step and a half across the plywood floor to the bed. Watch him kiss her. She loved the way desire overtook Larry, how one moment he'd be there with all the complexity of his life playing across his features on his face, twitching in his fingers, and then, a moment later, how he dwelled completely in his need. She looked at her watch, 10 minutes. Okay, I'm gonna read one last section. And um, I'm gonna give a little away, a little bit of the story, but it's not really giving that much away. You would have figured this out probably. Um, Larry doesn't show up. And so this is the last section I'm going to read. It's the next morning. Uh, Rosie spent the night. And she, a uh, big storm came in in the night. And her flight, as I mentioned, is, is that day. And she wants on that flight so badly now that she decides to go back to South Pole Station despite the storm. Walk back. It didn't take long for Rosie to lose her senses. She hadn't seen a flag in a long time. They were planted to withstand storms. That was the whole point, but the wind today was pretty damn fierce. Maybe they'd been uprooted like trees and blasted across the polar plateau. The picture of tangled sticks and red nylon flags flying through space pleased Rosie. Such letting go, such giving in to the forces. But maybe this route never had been fl flagged in the first place. It disturbed her that she couldn't remember this simple fact, that when she tried to focus on remembering her thoughts tossed about as freely as the flags might have. Event eventually, she forgave the flags, whether they existed or not, for abandoning their posts. They were supposed to guide her, as were her thoughts, but she didn't need them. She would just keep walking forward, following the tracks. Rosie checked her watch. She'd been walking for over an hour, or maybe it had been two hours. She should have gotten there a while ago. She glanced down to make sure she was on course and realized that she was walking across frozen waves of snow undisturbed by boot tracks. Okay, the blowing snow had covered them. Forward, that was all. It wasn't that cold today, well over zero. The storm insulated, a blanket, snug. As long as she walked briskly, her body heat filling the jacket and hat and mittens and boots, she would be fine. She decided it would help if she faced the facts, admitted, that she had been very stupid to come out here without a radio. Larry hadn't wanted them to check out from Pole Ops because then station officials would know they had gone out to the hut together. There would be a written record of the event, or, as it turned out, the non-event. 
Thinking of this no-show made her feel more tired and more cold. Alice said, that's the, her friend, the um, climate change geologist. Alice said all animals mate. They also all die. Maybe biology was a bad guide for life. Ha, huh, biology was life. Still, a person might get more mileage staying focused on Michaela's cosmology, the gorgeous swirling mass of energy, the aching beauty. Yeah, the aching beauty. In spite of Larry not coming, in spite of Rosie having to say no to Michaela, we all still swirled around in the cosmic soup looking for love and beauty. Rosie fished an energy bar out of her pocket and sucked on it as she walked, warming each bite to make it chewable. She needed water, too, but the only way to get that would be to put snow in her water bottle and melt it against her skin. That didn't seem like a good idea. She was growing tired and getting colder. She needed to keep walking. She sang, in her imagination only, because opening her mouth would dehydrate and cool her body. Every song she remembered from her father's repertoire, mostly the dead, of course, but some Janice and Jimmy, even the Beatles and Dylan. Then when she moved on to nursery rhymes, she went ahead and freed her voice, opened her mouth and throat to the elements. She'd be fine as long as she stayed on her feet, kept walking. But the cold, it was like knives. Rosie stopped and rolled up a pant leg to see if the knives had drawn blood. Getting the wind pant and fleece pant and long underwear pant all rolled up was difficult, but she managed to find some skin on her shin. She saw no blood. She carefully pushed all the layers back down over her leg, but as she walked, the sensation of being stabbed intensified. Someone was breaking her joints. She supposed she should return to the station. Oh, but that's what she was doing, returning to the station. She really needed to check her skin, though. Her clothes felt so binding and restrictive. She wanted, more than anything, to shed her down parka. She imagined tossing it to the wind and then her purple fleece jacket, too, and watching the patches of tan and purple fly away, the colors so pretty against the tiny white snowflakes. She took off a mitten but couldn't get a hold of the jacket zipper. Even her hat was stuck on her head, held in place by the strap of the goggles. She was too tired to get out of these difficult clothes. What she needed was a nap. Why hadn't she thought of that sooner? A little rest, then she'd get back to the station. Rosie lay down on the snow. She curled herself up like a potato bug. Her mind was doing a funny thing. It was like a foundering satellite, spinning in its quiet and solitary orbit, receiving no signals whatsoever. Then occasionally it would get a signal from the outside and flicker to life. When it did, she'd have a clear thought. Right now that thought was shelter. Her first season, she had learned how to dig a snow trench for shelter. Snow was excellent insulation. A person could survive for a long time in a snow shelter. The thing was, when her mind sharpened like this, so did the pain in her limbs and joints. It was a pain so intense she didn't think she could endure it. She certainly couldn't walk with that pain, so she rested. A nice short nap, and she'd be good to go. Then, all at once, the stabs of cold stopped. Rosie unfurled her body and stretched out on the ice on her back and looked up into the white spin of snow. A warm syrup ran through her bloodstream. It was lovely. She didn't know when she'd ever felt so comfortable, nor had she ever seen so much. The bits of blowing snow and of ice and snow were stars, the cosmos, creation. Time and space were meaningless. The Big Bang was ongoing, a swirling universe of galaxies and black holes, a whole symphony of cosmic microwaves blasting out from that original dot. How many angels danced on the head of the Big Bang singularity? We all returned to the cosmos. It was heaven. A lucid moment, or maybe a dream, <clears throat> excuse me, brought Michaela's voice to her. Lucky girl, she had said. Everyone comes to this continent for a reason, and everyone expects her reason to be met by the continent. That girl saw the heart of Antarctica in a way you or I never will. I wonder if she heard its music, too. 
Rosie smiled. She could tell Michaela later when she got back to the station that she had heard Antarctica's music. Rosie swung her arms and legs in big arcs, making a snow angel. She smiled and drifted. The snowflakes hitting her face were warm and lush. A big, huge laugh filled her heart. She'd been in flight her whole life. But finally, she had landed. She had only a short distance to go now. Told you. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.